Hey, everyone, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you get an update as soon as the next episode is ready. And if you love what you hear, consider joining Stitcher Premium today. Stitcher Premium subscribers can hear the entire series. That's all seven episodes of Dear Franklin Jones right now. Yep, they're all up there. To sign up, go to DearFranklinJones.com and use the promo code JONES for one month free. This See, photo, this though. is you with your yoga posture in in the shower. So much fun being a mom. Okay, so what else we got here? My mom and I are looking at pictures of me as a little kid. Lots of pictures of Johnny. Here's my happy dude. We're in the storage unit she's had for over 15 years. There's boxes stacked on top of furniture. Kathleen lives in a small apartment now. Most of this stuff is from when she had a bigger place. My parents were still married. She's pulling things out of a wicker basket and finds a photo of the three of us, mom, dad, and me. That's a really good one. What is that? Describe it. Okay, what this one is, is your dad and I, we we went to a Halloween party, and um, he became a satyr, and I was a wood nymph, and you were a leopard. And so Thomas is not wearing a shirt. Right. He's not. He might have gone like that, for all I know. And you are the, you're the leopard. Very fun. I'm bringing that up. That's a good one. She smiles as she looks at the photo. Those early years following Franklin Jones, they were a bright spot in her life. She saw my childhood as something open and free. But when I remember how Jones's influence surrounded our lives, to me now, it seems more like a consuming fire. You still have this picture of him back here. Mixed in with our family photos, I find a copy of Jones's autobiography. His picture's on the front. He's on the beach oh, yeah. in Fiji, wearing an orange sarong tucked underneath his wide belly. No shirt. He's holding this walking staff, looking over his followers who surround him on the beach. Their hands are raised in the air. I hold it out to my mom. Now, can I ask you a question? Sure. Because I think a lot of people... Can you pick up that book for a sec? Mm-hmm. I can imagine people looking at that cover and not finding it attractive at all. Sure. And what would you say to those people? What are they missing? What are they missing about looking at that photo and saying, geez, it just looks like a heavy set man in because his 50s the, and sure. half naked standing in front of a bunch of people worshiping him? Sure. But what's missing is what it was like to be in his presence. Because being in his presence was like a power you have never experienced. Give me your attention. At any moment, and you will receive this grace. We could make things appear or vanish. And uh, he could direct so much force at somebody that he fell on their ass, you see. He came and he just radiated light, like as if, as if he, you know, I mean, it, and it moved you. You were touched by it. But I'm not a me, you see. I literally am you. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. This is Dear Franklin Jones.
I was four years old when I began to grasp the power Jones had over people, over my family. At this point, we lived with another member of the group. She always had a big pot of hot water going for tea on the ground near the door of her room. I remember big puffs of steam floating out of it. Like most kids, I loved running around the house. And one time when I ran into her room, my foot landed in this bowl of boiling water. I immediately started howling. My mom and dad rushed in and picked me up. They put acupuncture needles in my foot and repeated these words, no pain is necessary, no pain is necessary. They were the words of Franklin Jones, part of his philosophy. Life is suffering. Their destiny is suffering. And so suffering is the first uh, form of grace. After a few minutes, my breathing stabilized, started to focus. Those words seemed to work. I still felt the pain, but it seemed less scary. I guess in a way, it was the first lesson I got from Franklin Jones. I spent my childhood in the San Francisco Bay Area, and on Sundays, we'd meet with other members to worship Jones. But Jones himself, he was living on that remote island in Fiji with about 40 of his most devoted followers. So in the early years of my childhood, Jones was a picture we worshipped a voice on the cassette tapes that played in my parents' car. Wherever there is an other, fear arises. So a whole life, every, every moment of an ordinary life, is at its very core built on this separate self-sense. Therefore, there is nothing but others. The sense of otherness of separation in every moment. Each night as I went to sleep, my mom would put on this tape of Jones's words. This one was written for kids. It's read by a young boy. It's titled, What to Remember to be Happy. Nobody, not mom or dad or grandmother or grandfather or big sister or big brother or teachers or doctors or soldiers or reverends or athletes or lawyers or TV stars or any people who are working or any people who are playing, not even the president, not even a king or a queen, not even people who love each other know what a single thing is. Through this little kid, Jones delivered a simplified version of his doctrine, that the world is unknowable and mysterious, that to be happy, we need to accept his doctrine as our reality and focus on him, Jones. In his kid language, was called feeling the mystery of how everything is, but nobody knows what it really is or how it came to be. As long as we go on feeling this mystery, we feel free and full and happy, and we feel and act free and full and happy to others. This is the secret of being happy from the time you are small until the time you are old. I hadn't met Jones yet, not at that point, but he was everywhere like a god. And lying in my bed at night, listening to those tapes, I felt safe and protected. His words were like a prayer, a promise. I have been doing this for a long time, and it is the best and most important feeling of all. I am very happy I could tell you this. 
Maybe someday we will meet face to face. Maybe. My parents were grateful for these tapes. They distilled the complicated teachings of the guru into a language I could understand. They were part of a community that helped each other out, daily chores, taking care of kids, so that they could focus on their spiritual practice. But there were also a lot of rules. Followers had to be vegetarians, meditate twice a day, do calisthenics, live communally, and speak to other members of the group about any problems in their relationships or spiritual practice. Books like Conscious Exercise and the Transcendental Sun, with little illustrations of Jones doing sun salutations, Eating Gorilla Comes in Peace, a book about diet, and Love of the Two-Armed Form, a book about sex and relationship that was pretty specific, including instructions about how to have sex, how to masturbate. My parents had them all. To be fair, members were expected to purchase them. But there was one aspect of the group that Kathleen and Thomas had problems with. Community members were also instructed to watch each other. So that you're accountable, quote-unquote accountable. I had immediate uh, issues uh, with some of the pretentious and portentous individuals at the gate. One of the things Thomas and Kathleen struggled with the most were these things called interviews, psychological evaluations that community members did on one another. Participation was mandatory. These interviews all revolved around this idea of the Oedipal complex. You know, the Greek myth of Oedipus who killed his father and married his mother. It's not a new idea, the Oedipal complex. Freud talked a lot about it. Well, an Oedipal is really a psychological term. You know, where Pumby will sit and go in therapy for, for you know, a long time to try to sort out their relationship with their parents. Uh, and that's what we attempted to do. The community used this idea of the Oedipal complex as a method for probing each other, pushing each other. Members would seek out painful memories involving someone's parents, and the group would analyze how it had colored that person's behavior. They called it doing an Oedipal. Yeah, you know, there were people who were not very skilled who were doing your Oedipal. And they were going to help you to resolve things. Well, that often turned out to be a mess. (laughs) You know, there were people who wanted to be in the power seat. And so, of course, they they would start telling you um, what they thought of you. My mom says these sessions were hard to go through and not very helpful. And you had to agree with the group's assessment. If you rejected their conclusions, you'd be called spiritually immature, which was the worst kind of insult for a follower of Franklin Jones. At home, my parents even tried to do each other's Oedipal. They combed through their early sexual experiences, dug into childhood traumas. Especially with Kathleen, God knows I went through her whole life. And they were exhausting, but it didn't do any good. I saw it didn't do any good. So my parents avoided these group therapy sessions. I remember them privately making fun of other group members for kind of being losers or acting as Jones's bureaucrats and taking the business part of Jones's religion too seriously. They kept us separate, sort of. For a long time, we lived in the city, and my parents commuted to the sanctuary. But Thomas was close to one other member, James Steinberg. And we started to relate to each other. I mean, it it took me a while to finally realize that Thomas was 
one of my best friends. James, you'll remember, was a part of the inner circle that dealt with the fallout of the controversy in the 80s. James became friends with my dad right around that time, started coming to him for acupuncture. Uh, Thomas was, was always a deep thinker, and so we would have very spirited discussions always. And we became heart friends. I mean, it was because we were talking about our spiritual practice. And eventually, James connects Thomas more closely to Jones. He helps Thomas relay messages, even edits some of his letters to him. Without James, I doubt my parents would have become as close to Jones as they eventually did. Still, during the early years of my childhood, I kind of had a foot in both worlds. Still went to public schools. After school, I'd ride my bike along the waterfront, past Alcatraz Island, the Golden Gate Bridge, play basketball, hang out with kids who didn't worship a man with many names. I remember those years as really happy, but we were also isolated. People, for instance, very rarely came to our house, because if they had, they would have seen the large cardboard cutout of Franklin Jones near the door. My parents spent hours meditating in front of it. Then, in 1993, when I was eight, Jones's inner circle sent my mom a message. I was invited to go to Fiji to treat the guru and his wives. It was an honor to be invited. And it was a rare opportunity to meet Jones one-to-one in Fiji. Jones's previous acupuncturist could no longer treat him, and so Kathleen went for three weeks in her stead. The first time she treated him, Jones wore an orange Speedo. Orange was the color, was the significant color of renunciation, which meant that you were going to renounce your separate self. And when she came back, her acupuncture business took off. On the island, she'd made friends with one of Jones's wives and started to give her treatments, too. Word spread quickly that the Hirsches had become Jones's healers. So his followers were also eager to be clients. At this point, my parents had been members for 10 years. And during that time, Jones had changed a lot. At one point, he told his followers he'd had a near-death experience, that he'd been called to remain on Earth by their prayers and the silent supplications of four billion unenlightened people on Earth. That he had been reborn to save mankind from suffering. And he'd renamed himself again. Swami Da Lovananda Paramahamsa Avadhuta, Heart Master Da Free John. Yeah. Consciousness itself is the true Heart Master. Consciousness itself is Da. Consciousness itself is self-existing, self-radiant, inherently free, Lavananda. I am Heartmaster Da Lavananda. Consciousness itself is the way that I teach. When he moves back to California in 1995, Jones is physically different, too. Dresses in orange robes and wears his hair in a top knot. He's lost a ton of weight. His cheeks are sunken in. His eyes seem darker, more intense. He begins calling himself a world teacher. And my parents start driving up on the weekends to sit in meditation with Jones. These events are large and open to most members. We called them darshans, which in Sanskrit means to see. 
like he would come down and his um, attendants would come with him and there would be candles lit in some cases and incense going um, uh, and uh, all the gathering would be chanting in Sanskrit that's like praying in you know it's like praying but chanting his name was often in the Chance. My parents say all kinds of bizarre and amazing things happened during these meditations. Thomas says he saw Jones exercise supernatural abilities. One time, he claims he was in Darshan with Jones. He saw him stare at somebody, and then... He could direct so much force at somebody that he fell on their ass, you see? Followers collected proof that Jones had a hand in altering world events. They published them in a huge compendium called The Promised Godman Is Here. The book alleges that Jones helped topple the Berlin Wall, which happened exactly one week after his 50th birthday in 1989, and bring an end to authoritarian governments in Eastern Europe. In the book, there's a page of clippings from the Washington Post, cited as evidence. During a darshan, my mom says, Jones's power was almost tangible. He came and he just radiated light, and it moved you. It was touched by it in your heart you could feel it i could feel it in my heart and i would open my heart more and i would people would be crying and sobbing not in a negative way necessarily you know pouring out all, all their their pouring their life out <laughs> and and feeling so i guess you could say blissed out afterwards But as my parents became more involved with Jones, I fought it, at least at first. In 1995, I was 11 years old. We lived in Larkspur, California, and we argued all the time, especially me and my dad. On the weekends, when my parents went to Lake County for darshan and community gatherings, I'd stay with friends. I mean, I was in middle school. I wanted things that had nothing to do with spiritual life, to be popular, to have a girlfriend, for the Knicks to beat the Rockets in the NBA Finals. But my parents, they wanted me to meditate and join them on their drives to see Jones. And even though I resisted, they would bring back Jones's teachings, like the idea of those Oedipal therapy sessions. I remember once they tried to get me to admit my Oedipal, that I was sexually attracted to my mother. I still remember the deep disgust I felt. I was a preteen boy, and there was my dad standing in front of me trying to make me confess that I wanted to have sex with my mom. I refused. Later that same year, our apartment burned down. Embers from the fireplace sparked some old newspapers. I was in bed listening to a Giants game. My parents were almost asleep when they saw smoke curling up from the crack in the door, creeping along the ceiling. They grabbed me, we ran out of the house, I remember watching the wires pop from inside the walls. Firefighters and first responders came, put out the fire, made sure we were okay. We sat in our car in the driveway, and my dad turned to my mom and said, well, I guess we didn't really need all that stuff anyway. They both laughed, so I laughed too. Members of the group sent a note to Jones, letting him know what had happened to us. But Jones said he didn't care. 
Oh, the, the fire we had. So no, it's nothing. It's yep. not something interesting. It was just another lesson from Jones. Even if I didn't understand this until much later, that Jones wasn't there to make our lives better or easier. He was there as an example to show his followers what enlightenment was. But the biggest change was after the fire, even though Jones had said he didn't care about our house burning down, we moved near his compound. When I think about all this now, as an adult, I feel sad. Not really for the fire itself, but for how willing my parents were to give up everything, change their lives, for Jones. But not long after, I became a follower too. Chose it. As much as you can choose something like that when you're 13. Now, it's hard to understand how Franklin Jones, a middle-class kid from New York, could convince thousands of people, my mom, my dad, me, to give up everything to follow him. That's next time. Dear Franklin Jones is reported and produced by me, Jonathan Hirsch, along with Ashley Cleek and Annie Aviles. Our associate producer is Nora Lind. Our senior producer is John Asante. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelet. Special editorial guidance from Peter Clowney. Thanks to the great sound engineers Casey Holford and Eric Jorgensen. Original music by Ray Lynch. Dear Franklin Jones is a production of Stitcher. You can think of household name episodes as lifelines when you're stuck in a boring conversation. Need to change the subject? Tell them the secrets behind Victoria's Secret. Or how a single lie turned KFC into a Japanese Christmas tradition. It was lie, but uh, (laughs) I still regret that. Did you know Panera opened cafes where customers could pay whatever they wanted? That before it was a hippie car, the VW Beetle was created by Nazis. Hitler built a city for the Beetle? <laughs> like the hippie Beetle? <laughs> you can talk about how LaCroix, Crocs, Carhartt, and Canada Goose all became surprisingly cool. And wow your friends with stories of TGI Friday's wild early days as one of the first singles bars. I'd be standing at the bar on Fridays and say, hi, darling, I own this place. That seemed to work. I'm Dan Bobkoff, and I host Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher. We make this show so you have something to talk about. Subscribe to Household Name for surprising stories about famous brands. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Household Name, brands you know, stories you don't. Listener.